2: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone and you're listening to Voice America com, and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Christina Steinorth. Uh she is a relationship expert and psychotherapist and her new book is Cue Cards for Life: Thoughtful Tips for Better Relationships. And specifically we're going to be talking about our relationships with our aging parents and uh, Christina has some very specific ways And we as she calls them, cue cards, ways in which we can deal with our aging parents. And I guess on the other side, the way they can deal with us. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Christina.
3: Thank you for having me here today. All
2: right. So a very important topic. I think before we got on the air you and I were uh discussing this because we both have aging parents. Uh we are not unique. I think baby boomers are in that position. Uh, and there are some new, unique things, I think, or relationship issues that we have to be aware of as children of aging parents if we want to get along better with our parents, to be able to help them, and to maintain just a positive relationship within the families, which is what you cover in your, what,
3: seven cue cards. Exactly. You know, it, it is even with the experience you and I have as we were talking about, it's, it's still difficult. So I created these cue cards to help everybody because any kind of help we can get, regardless of your experience, will, will help make that transition for your parents and keep your relationship intact.
2: Because overall, what I mean, you. One of the descriptions is and I'm not sure if this is in your book or not. But as parents, as people age, and we're going to be hopefully in that position someday, um, there are certain things that begin to happen. Um, aging parents have physical and cognitive decline, no matter how healthy they are. And I think mm-hmm. we have to say you don't necessarily have to have a chronic illness or be really sick, but just the process of aging, your cognitive abilities are not as acute. Your physical abilities aren't as acute. So that's kind of a given, isn't it, with with
3: aging parents? It is a given. And a perfect example is my mom. She's 76 years old, and she's always been in fantastic health. And cognitively she's intact, but just this last year, she started to have issues with mobility. And, you know, it's these little things that you can't stop no matter how good of shape you're in or how good of shape you have been in your whole life. These types of things happen, and with that then then comes like a series of losses. Like in her case, the loss of mobility, she can't walk like she used to every day. And, you know, that kind of stuff starts to weigh, and it kind of co- has a compounding effect that, you know, you can't do what you used to, you can't go to the places you used to, so you become more isolated, and that could lead to depression. So, you know, it's kind of like this This circle, this kind of dog chasing its tail type of thing that it doesn't really get better at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah, well I think you said it. It,
2: Life is a series of losses and
3: then when you get to the end
2: of life kinds of issues you have to deal with I mean you're dealing with very, as you say very, well they're serious losses. Mobility is one and I think it's exacerbated. I don't know if it's true with your mother. If you if your cognitive abilities are intact because then you're really aware of what you're losing I mean you know you can't do as many activities in, as in one day as you, as you used to be able to do. I know my mother, who's going to be 90 years old, and she's out there, but she'll say, well, I can do two things a day, not four things a day or six things a day. Um, so that's a loss. So what, you're even more aware of it, I think, if you're, if your cognitive abilities are intact.
3: I completely agree with you. And, you know, she often complains. She says, oh, I'm getting old now. I can't do this. I can't do that. And again, that, that adds to that depression that we see so often in this age group. And if it's not depression, it's frustration. Yeah, and that leads to anger, and then we wonder why, why do they seem so snappy sometimes? And it's like, well, you need to put yourself in their position. If all of a sudden you couldn't do the things that you were used to, you know, it, it just gets very hard, and it is very, very frustrating. So is, uh, first of all, is there an answer?
2: Well, you do, you're kind of getting into that first cue card. You put yourself in their shoes, which I, I think sometimes it's not easy to do. Um, one of the things, if you well, you said think about it. What if you weren't able to drive? What if you actually, you know, somebody took the keys away from you and you weren't able to drive? What does that mean? I mean, that just takes away your whole lifestyle, and that's something that's happening, I think, to to seniors or to to aging parents. So then what do you do? How do you handle all these losses? I mean, you, I, I'm just going to say the one thing you say because I think this is so true. You have to change your routine. You have to do something different. Otherwise, you're going to sit there and be depressed about the loss. So what do you do?
3: Well, you know, you try to, from an a adult-child perspective, you try to work with your parents along these losses and help them come up with alternative ideas. In Let's say in the car example, alternative ideas for transportation. You know, perhaps you can hook them up with, a senior transportation service in the area. Maybe you can get together with your siblings and other family members and give them taxi vouchers. You know, we, what we try to do is look for ways to ease this transition so it's not this complete loss. Of course it's a complete loss to, to lose your driving privilege or to t- be told that you're not, not supposed to do that anymore, and it's very hard to take. But if you can try to spin it a little bit so it's a little more positive look, okay, we're just trying to keep you safe, we love you, and these are some alternatives way, alternative ways that we can get you around. It helps. You know, it's unrealistic to think that your parents are still going to be happy when you give them a, a pile of taxi vouchers. They're going to say, oh, you know, I'd rather drive. Of course they would. You know, anybody would. But you also have to work with them to help them accept the reality and the new transition and the new patterns of behaviors that they need to get into. Well, when you talk about those new patterns of behaviors, is there anything that
2: actually could be positive that could be a replacement for the driving? I I don't know if you can answer that question. I mean, I've had this discussion with several of my friends around this very issue, or as you say, you're kind of just softening the loss, but can you you actually replace the not being able to drive?
3: Well, I, I think when we talk about replacing the not being able to drive, it also depends on how bad the person was when they were driving I I had a recent issue with one of my clients who was dealing with their elderly father and their elderly father was getting into many many accidents and basically the DMV was this close to taking his license so in when that's the situation of course being able to replace their driving with something else you can you can spin it that you know I want to keep you safe I don't want anything to happen to you his this person's father knew that he shouldn't be driving, and the way that we had him approach it, at first the father was angry, but he understood, you know, he says, yeah, I want you to be around, I don't want you to hurt anybody, because that could lead to a bunch of other legal issues. So, you know, again, it's severity of scope, I guess, is what we're trying to say
2: here. Yeah, I think that's, that, you know, that's absolutely true. I mean, he had already been in several accidents in some cases. You want to prevent any accidents from happening or even a minor accident with a, a frail 85 year old or 90 or 95 year old, uh, an airbag can, can have disastrous effects if you're in an accident.
3: It's... Yeah, with the brittle bones and things yeah. like that. And, you know, I, I know that the aging population, some of them go through great, go to great lengths to keep their driving privileges. I know of one person in particular. He has uh, macular degeneration in one eye. And what he does before he has to go renew his license, two weeks before the DMV uh, exam, he'll go memorize the charts and go take that test. Mm-hmm. And he passes. But I mean, these are the things because people want to hold on to that privilege. So we need to be cognizant of what's going on with our parents to help them make this transition and have those necessary conversations that, look, if you need to do that to keep your license, it may be time to consider giving it up.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I do, as you were talking, I'm thinking perhaps if somebody is that obviously intelligent and knows how to do that and trying to at least beat the system, perhaps you could take some of that energy with some of the senior citizens who are uh, facing you know this this issue of losing their license, maybe there should be some kind of uh, group support where they can talk to each other about the losses, not just the responsibility of the family to be able to communicate with your aging parents, but maybe kind of to um, it would also help the isolation but you know I'm just thinking that there would be something that could get groups of of um, of aging uh, Senior citizens together to talk about some of these issues because that always helps no matter what stage you're at. I mean, as a therapist, well, I mean, we both know that.
3: It would be a great idea and I, I think because this whole thing of people living so long and so many people living so long, I think this is such a new frontier that we really haven't put those groups together yet. But I think when we have the opportunity, if we could suggest it, I think it would be great because it helps, it helps seniors, it helps anybody to socialize. Exactly. And they're living longer and
2: healthy or you know, healthy for that age group. It's not that you're necessarily living with a horrific chronic illness or, I mean, you may be, but you may be just healthy, but just going through the natural aging process. And maybe some of that stuff could be done on the net. Um, okay let 's take cue card number two because you, you cover a lot of of, uh, of issues, and uh, one of the things you say is, "Be a household problem detective. What
3: is that? Well, this is the type of thing when we go visit our parents if they have like little area rugs, which a lot of elderly people tend to do because their feet get cold. so many times those don 't really stick to the floor. And, you know, the one, one wrong step, and they could slip out from under their feet, they could fall, and again, because of the brittle bones, uh, perhaps some balance issues, they could get very hurt and end up in the hospital, and we don't want that to happen at this age. We don't want it to happen at any age, but especially when they're, they're in this age group. The other thing we want to look for is uneven flooring surfaces when we go over there and another good thing to look at is, does everything look okay in their house? Because sometimes when we start to see cognitive deficits, things won't look quite right. You know, if you take a look at the total landscape, it looks okay. But if you look closer, like maybe you open a drawer and there's a pile of tissues in there. Or maybe you open the refrigerator and maybe there's a hammer in there. You know, these little things when you're visiting your parents could really tip you off to where they are at cognitively. And when you can see these things, you can help step in and help them make a doctor's appointment to get further evaluation and help them out a little bit. Good
2: suggestion. I mean, my mother's cognitive skills are great. And some of the things that you have suggested, she has done on her own. And uh, I think one of the things you mentioned in, in one of the cue cards was make sure that maybe the top shelf in the kitchen or top shelves where you have to get stuff You don't use that anymore, so there's not a danger of falling. And I was just visiting her, and she said, did you notice I got rid of everything on my top shelf? (laughs) Your mom is a dream. (sighs) She knows how to do that, but no question about it. But one of the things, um, and you mentioned this, you know, are there proper railings, particularly in the bathrooms, and those kinds of things. How do you, I'm going to ask you another question, because when my mother comes to my house, she'll ask me, why don't you have railings in the bathroom, and why don't you have railings you know coming up your steps et cetera. and I don't want to do that yet just because I don't need them. So, you know, it's funny because I I'm always trying to figure out, well, I can help you, you know, manage or if you have to, but I don't want to put
3: railings in my bathroom. <laughs> oh, I get it. I'm the same way. You know, I, I find that as my parents are getting older, I'm spending a lot more time visiting them <laughs> for that reason <laughs> than they are visiting me. But You know, I I think that if we can have temporary measures in place, like I I bought my parents a portable wheelchair, have a little walker, I have a little cane that, you know, I have them keep in their trunk. So whenever they go anywhere, it kind of helps if they're having a mobility issue that way. And, you know, you can get these things surprisingly inexpensively at like a thrift store You can even get them at garage sales. So, you know, when you hear about durable medical equipment, we often think it's expensive, but it's really not if you know how to shop for it. And one of the other things they're doing,
2: as I noticed, Christina, they're making some of these wheelchairs, not necessarily wheelchairs that, let's say, a person with disabilities uses, but colorful wheelchairs. You see them advertised on television or on the net. They're almost like a chair, or they are like a chair, just like a regular chair, and they may be in different vibrant colors, but... A person, let's say, uh, an elderly person who wants to go to a museum, but you can't walk around a museum for two hours, but you could sit in one of these chairs, and it's not really a wheelchair. I think
3: those are, you know, great kinds, new kinds of innovations. That's exactly what I got them because, you know, they don't need it all the time, but when they do, it's there, and it's very lightweight, and it doesn't take up a lot of space. So, you know, if we can prep them as best as possible, of course we're not going to put in grab bars in our homes if we're not using them ourselves. But, you know, we can take those little extra precautions and provide them with portable things that, you know, we can help them make that transition when they come visit us. And we just, if we have uneven flooring, we kind of hold on to them, their arm and they may say, you know, I don't need that help. You just tell them, Mom, Dad, I want to help you. I don't want you to get hurt. You know, it's very hard for a parent to to get angry with that. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. And I think
2: uh, another thing is, a lot of it has to do with expectation and uh, this is a generation as you said earlier that we haven't been necessarily prepared for because this is a generation that's living longer living more healthy living to be 90 100 years old and we really haven't explored the possibilities of what they can do or how we handle these relationships so i'm thinking for instance in our generation the baby boomers maybe we have to do something we have in terms of Having certain expectations for what happens, we have to be aware as aging people um, and have the, uh, the, I guess, the proper expectations of what's going to happen when we age, so that we're prepared for it. Like, for instance, there's kind of a, and you, we discussed this a little bit off air. There's a develop, I think there's a developmental stage to aging, just like there's a developmental stages. From one to five with little children and we go through teenager and, and adulthood and middle age and old age too also and no matter what or where we come from, how much money we have, whatever our education is, we still end up developmentally doing similar things mm-hmm. in the, uh, from, I'm making from 80 to 90 or 75 to 95. So we, there are some things we know about beforehand, and, and we could prepare for it.
3: I agree. and I, I think that, you know, it, and it doesn't matter, as you say, the level of education you have. I mean, we can all expect that no matter what happens as we age, we're going to have certain losses. We're not going to be able to get around as well as we used to. We may have cognitive problems. We're not going to be quite as independent so if we can prepare ourselves that there's kind of a dependency shift that will happen with our parents, and that for them is very difficult because they're used to being our parent. So it's kind of a role transition. Now we're switching to taking care of them, and you know that can cause a lot of a lot of uh, resentment. Is a strong word, but for some people it is. They do resent the fact that they they are in that position. So I don't think I don't think resentment is a strong word. I think you—that's
2: uh, probably exactly what it is. I mean, I know myself. I, and as I'm picturing myself, you know, thirty years hence, if I'm still here, I would be resentful. And and then you're be, looking at your children who are able to do all of these things, things that you were able to do and you can't do anymore. Not just that you're dependent on them, but you see them out there, active, traveling, you know, d- being able to. Physically do what they want to do. I can understand the resentment.
3: You know, and I do too. I, I, I just think that sometimes when I, I use that word, some people say, "Why?" Well, you know, again, it kicks up that, that defiant. Well, I'm not resentful <laughs> type of thing. And you know, this is what aging people do, and I understand it. And I, I think that when we can start to get a better grasp of that overall picture like we were talking about, of what we can realistically expect. It's unrealistic to expect that they're going to have the same level of independence at 95 as they did at 65. And once we can make that that shift in our head, I think it helps us work with them better and more effectively.
2: Yeah, if you just accept that as a given. I mean, 65-year-olds are different than 90-year-olds. That's just the way it is.
3: And there's even a difference between 65 and 75. You know, I I was telling you off air that I just helped my parents move two weeks ago. And I think it was a move that they downsized and moved to a one-level place. I think it's honestly a move they should have made maybe 15 years ago because there was a big difference in that decade, decade and a half. So we we do see things happen kind of rapidly, just as when kids are growing up. They change rapidly. The same on... The the later years, like you talked about, the developmental stages, it it goes very, very quickly. Yeah, I agree with you. That's true. I mean, every decade makes a
2: huge difference in terms of how one functions. Um, what about the Internet? Uh, I know that's one thing that my mother, particularly a very bright woman, uh, actually uh, has almost got her degree in social work, MSW, and uh, she's very – and there's a whole frustration because she can't – she uses her computer – to Do emails and to Google things, but the level of sophistication in terms of using the computer is not what it would have been for her, say twenty years ago mm-hmm. and that's very frustrating and then she doesn't have a lot of friends who use the internet and she said and a lot of them aren't around anymore anyway, so she doesn 't have the opportunity to go back and forth and and uh, you know connect with other people her age on the internet. Uh, someone who's always been very involved and kind of very out there and knows what's happening, traveled a lot and reads. But that whole area is not open to her in the same way. And I know that's terribly frustrating.
3: It is terribly frustrating because also as a culture, we become more accustomed to having non-face-to-face interactions. Most of us are on the internet or we're texting all the time. So it's, It's also that the combination of not being able to use it and the people that you would have normally interacted with, they're not available to you anymore because they've either passed away or they're using the computer or texting to be in touch. And I think when that's the situation, again, this is a really good instance where one of those senior groups that we talked about earlier would be a good place to talk about that because, you know, somebody could come in and teach more computer skills, and then the whole group would learn them. You know, but... What you try to do is you you try to stay connected. Like I, I email my parents. Like I'll email them pictures and stuff like that. So there's a little something to look forward to. You can kind of play with things and make them as positive as possible. And I think when we talk about this age group, this is what we try to do. We don't want to certainly pander to them, but we also want to help them feel engaged because it's good for them.
2: Yeah, you're right, and I think uh and in my situation, my mother has many grandchildren who are... Actually, she gets too many pictures. We laugh about it. <laughs> Everybody is sending her reams of... She loves getting them, and so do I, but uh, lots and lots of photographs. That's not a problem because it's a big family. And other families where maybe you don't have as many grandchildren or you're not as connected to your family, that's an issue, too. Um, and, you know, as, as therapists, I mean, we both know as we refer to, pre-morbid functioning. Like if you have somebody who was fairly isolated before, you're going to be even more isolated as you get older. But if you've had more connections, hopefully you can at least you know, keep up with, with many of those, and that makes a difference.
3: It does make a difference. It helps lift their mood. It gives them something to look forward to. And it's also important, I think, for the younger generations to have contact with the older generations because so much history and so much tradition is passed down and also, our parents, our aging parents, take great pride in doing that. So it's a win-win for everybody when we
2: can encourage that kind of interaction. One of the things that you mentioned, I'm going to let you talk about it, is um, what because you interviewed uh, aging parents, and one of the questions was, you said in your master's thesis, I guess it was, you asked them what was the um, what was the one thing that they expected most from their children. And, or wanted most from their children?
3: This was so surprising to me. My, the title of my master's thesis was, what do, uh, what do Aging Adults Expect from Their Adult Children? And the number one answer I was completely surprised was, they just want to hear from them. All they want is a phone call a couple times a week. Because for so many aging adults, like we've talked about, it's an isolative experience. They want a lifeline to their children. It's like their lifeline for many people to the outside world. And it's amazing to me how much they can look forward to and get out of that phone call. doesn't need to be an hour. doesn't need to be two hours, ten minutes a couple times a week. It can make a world of difference in their outlook, give them something to look forward to, helps minimize depression, and it makes them happy because they want to stay connected to us. Uh, connectedness is the word. I mean, I have kids in their
2: 20s and early 30s, and all I need is a text once in a while <laughs> or a phone call, and it makes me feel good. And, it's true. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a huge conversation. They don't have to call me all the time, and we're very close. But it's just, it really is incredible, but like one, what one text message can do for your, or at least I'll speak for myself for my day, having that connection with one of my kids. I have three boys.
3: You know, I talk with my mom every day, and some days I look at my phone to see how long we've talked, and it's less than three minutes. But, you know, she'll say, it's just so good to hear from you. It's okay if we don't have anything to say. And it's a really good example that they're not expecting much. They just want to know that we're okay and that we're checking. It lets them know that we also value them, that we want to know that they're okay. And that's very healing for people. You know, we... One of the things you
2: mentioned, I don't know if this is always possible because this was cue card number seven and I'm looking at this one and you say, and it's a good idea but I'm not sure how this works with many families. Like let's say you have several siblings and if one member of the family visits uh, their mother or their father uh, that they send an update to each one of their other siblings about how mom or dad or both are doing. Uh, because some siblings, first of all, they're not close to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be arguing about how to take care of mom or dad or, you know, there are lots of different kinds of issues. So that's not always practical, although you're saying that's a good idea if you can do it so that everybody has an update on how their aging parents are faring.
3: I think when we talk about interacting with our siblings at this age group, we need to also – another. it's another reality check for us, just as we have to have a reality check of the developmental stages that will happen. I think ideally we would love to work with our siblings to be all on the same page, help each other out, have them be receptive to any updates that we send. But I also think you need to keep in mind if you've never had a close relationship with your sibling or if it's been kind of rocky as of late, just because your parents need your help isn't going to magically repair that relationship. And in some cases it could make it worse because some siblings, you know, you don't know how another person's going to take the aging experience. They they may be afraid of it. You know, you and I are able to talk about it because we're therapists. It doesn't intimidate us. But for some people, it's very scary. And when they get scared, they don't want anything to do with it.
2: Uh, uh, yes, and I and I have found, unfortunately, I think what happens is, particularly with aging parents, and then you have two or three or four children. They all have different have a different relationship, obviously, with their parents. They have, they're usually in different situations themselves, whether financial or social or whatever, and they have very different ideas about what to do with mom or, or how to interact with mom or dad. And it creates, that's a huge issue. You know, whether or not should dad be driving. And, and, you know, one kid will say, well, it's okay if they just limit their driving in certain places. The other one will say, absolutely not. Nobody should be driving uh at 95 years old. So, you know, and then the, a lot of animosity and family issues become exacerbated in those kinds of when they're forced to make those kinds of decisions. At least that's been my experience.
3: I completely agree with you. I spent a lot of time while I was working getting my hours for my license, working with the elderly in skilled nursing facilities and in hospitals, and it's very, very common. And what I encourage families to do You know, once parents start to hit a certain age, you know, maybe in their mid to late 60s, you know, when you have those family get-togethers, kind of bring that, that topic up. You know, talk about your expectations because what a lot of children are also surprised to find that the parents don't want to go live with them, say if they would want to take them in. The parents say, I would never live with you for a variety of reasons. Maybe they don't want to give up that much independence. They'd rather live in a, in an assisted living facility. Or maybe they don't like your spouse and can't even imagine living under the same roof. You know, this kind of thing happens. So I think that as as much as we can educate each other about our expectations, and as soon as we can, we give ourselves the gift of time to work through those issues and come to some type of mutual, mutually satisfactory resolution. The last thing that you say, above all, always be nice. <laughs> not it's, always easy to do. It's not easy to do, and I, I realize it's kind of an unrealistic expectation for most <laughs> it of us. It's do good, <laughs> but <laughs> we should try because there's so much truth to the the saying that you get more flies with honey. You know, and when we get impatient, when we get snippy. We elicit that resistance from whatever, whoever we're we're working with, and that that goes for our parents too. If we're able to approach it calmly and compassionately, we'll get so much further in our conversations with them.
2: I agree with you. I I think it would be. We have about 30 seconds left, so I think that's really a good word to leave the show on. It has been a pleasure talking to you, Christina, because all of what you've had to say is. Uh, it's very practical. I mean, it's, it, we can use this in our everyday life with our parents and our aging parents. So I want cue cards for life, thoughtful tips for better relationships, Christina Steinorth. And, Christina,
3: what, give us a website that listeners can go to. www.ChristinaSteinorth, steinort
2: Great. Thanks. Thanks for being on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now, and uh, coming up next is Ashley Merriman. Ashley is the author of Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. <music>
0: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be.
1: Listen anywhere.
0: Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures
4: of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology
0: the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back.
2: You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio joining me this morning is my second guest, Ashley Merriman. Ashley is the author of Top Dog. Actually, she co-authored the book with Poe Bronson, Top Dog: The Science of Winning and Losing. Uh Ashley's a New York Times best-selling author and attorney. She's worked in the Clinton administration and has written for Time and the Washington Post. Welcome to the show, Ashley.
3: Nice to you. On this-
2: thanks for having me. <laughs> Great to have you. Okay. The title of the book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Well, I'm making the assumption that we all want to be winners, no matter what we do. I mean, whether we are a teacher, whether we're in corporate America, whether we're a student, it seems to me we all want to win. Um, So in your book, you describe the difference between a winning and losing performance, and how to tip the odds of success in our favor. So let's start talking about that. We all want to be winners, but uh, your book actually points out how we can be winners sort of in a different way than maybe what we traditionally have expected
4: would make a winner.
2: Is that true? Am I describing it right?
4: Uh, well, I think so. I think what we've learned is that, you know, sure, the goal of any one contest or competition is to win. But the benefit of competition isn't winning. I can't guarantee that you're never going to lose. The only way I can promise that is if I say never compete, right? And we have to understand that, you know, losing is part of the process. It's a learning experience when at least you learn not to make those mistakes again. But even... In those moments of a losing performance, you can still push yourself to do the hard, um, to do something harder and stronger and be more motivated than you ever thought possible. So we write in the book about Jason Lezak, the um, Olympic swimmer who was the anchor for the U.S. Te- uh, relay team in Beijing. And he had this complete uh, become from behind victory and it would set a world record on his time and everyone focuses on his amazing achievement but earlier in the race Five of the eight teams were all ahead of world record time. In that moment, with that great of field, they were all prepared to do more than they ever thought they could do. And that's the real benefit of competition, is that improved performance, pushing yourself harder, not taking your abilities for granted, not taking others for granted, but really testing yourself and finding out what you can do.
3: Okay, so
2: you answer the question in light of what you just said. Why are we, well on one occasion or on one day we're able to rise to the challenge to, mm-hmm. and then other days we're not. We, mm-hmm. we, we can't do it. Uh, why is that? Well, I mean,
4: that one obviously depends on a lot of different factors. One of them is maybe you just didn't care enough about this one. I mean, one of the things about good com- good competitors is they can pick and choose the battles. They understand, hey, this one's really important. I'm going to fight hard here. Another one, Maybe it wasn't important. Maybe they took it for granted. You know, we found that to keep motivation high, one of the most important things is something has to be a close race. If you obviously, I don't think this comes as a surprise to anyone, if you expect to be crushed, you're probably not going to work very hard during that competition. But the same thing happens to those who walked in thinking this was going to be easy. And I'm the sure thing. They, too, can not work as hard, not be as engaged, because they're just not as motivated to do it, because they were pretty sure that they would win ahead of time, and because of that, weren't actually participating as much as they should have been.
2: So where does somebody like Tiger Woods fit into it? Because I think he's another good example. Here's somebody who was winning, 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 then he had all the stuff with his uh, personal life happen to him, and then he stopped winning, winning, winning. Mm -hmm. How does that fit into your paradigm?
4: Well, I mean, I you know, obviously I'm, you know, I haven't met Tiger, so I'm loath to (laughs) psychoanalyze him. But you can do it. It's okay. We're just on the radio (laughs) and we we can do that. Well, but I mean, obviously I think everyone thought that he was having other pressures that were going to distract him from what he was actually there to do. And that's true for all of us, right? I mean, researchers have found that, you know, if you're just learning how to do something, having someone watch you hurts your performance because you've stopped concentrating on how you're doing. You're concentrating on the person who's watching you. On, I mean, Tiger obviously had expertise at golfing at that point, and most people say that once you're an expert, an audience actually helps you perform because you're not getting a little more complacent that, oh, I know how to do this. Yeah, get your But account. in Tiger's situation, but, yeah. you know, it wasn't just one or two people. It was millions of people watching to see if he was going to make a mistake. And it's interesting, the researchers, um, we talk sort of about a difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. And people sort of assume that playing not to lose is for losers um, and that they want to play to win, but it's actually more complicated than that. You can be playing not to lose when you're on top, when you're in a position like Tigers where you think everyone's just waiting for me to screw up. And what I have to do is prevent the mistakes that are going to prove I'm not the guy on top. And you can become more conservative in your approach. You start underplaying because you're afraid if you take the big risk that you, you know, Tiger was famous for, that may actually backfire. And the research actually in other golf, you know, study of like 2 million um, PGA golf tours found that. that the closer you got to victory – the more conservative you got because you were just like, I just came so far, now I can't screw it up. And that's when you screw up because you start thinking about the mistakes and thinking about the mistakes can help you make them. And I'm not saying that we need to have positive thinking where you just have to visualize the success and that's it. Um, That actually can backfire because you need to not take that success for granted. But you do need to focus on how you can succeed, which is different than preventing disasters and conflict.
2: Well, how you can succeed is it different in different arenas, because I'm thinking about mm-hmm. sports, and as you're describing it, you know, if you want to win, whether you're swimming or whether you're playing golf or whatever, it seems to me that you can overthink everything to the point where you're just, it's, it's mind-boggling, and you don't want to be in that situation when you're trying to win. I think of my youngest son who was on the a winning Swim team in high school that went to states and won awards. And I used to say, What do you think? Because he was a sprinter. Uh, and what are you thinking about when you, when you're, when you jump in the water? He said, I'm not, the only thing I think about is I've got to get to the other end of the pool. That's it. And it's that focus. I've got to touch the other end of the pool and come back and, and, and I don't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, and they won or he won or, and so, Maybe different sports. There's a different mindset. Or like, if you're trying, let's take. You've got all kinds of examples um, on Wall Street. You want to win. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You want to. You want to make the most money. And is there a strategy for it that would be different than the thinking that goes
4: into like winning a race, a swimming race? Well, I mean, but I think that's exactly the question. You know, there's a difference between playing to win and playing not to lose, and that applies in swimming or taking a test, picking classes in college or on Wall Street. If you're playing to win, you're probably looking for the, the huge IPO that's going to explode overnight. But you may lose a lot of money if you're going to be doing that, right? Playing not to lose would be smaller investments in more reliable companies. You know, that would be something you would probably would want to do, though, for a pension. Right? You don't necessarily want to take the big risk. So it it is context-specific in terms of what is your goal, you know, a smaller victory, a tie when you're playing not to lose. If you were a pension manager and you said, hey, I didn't make you any money, but I didn't lose any of your money either, you might say, well, that's okay because at least I've got the nest egg that I was counting on Um, as opposed to someone who is – you know, a venture capitalist, and he's playing to win, he wants to, you know, find the next Google and wants to have that huge return. So he'll be willing to have some big losses because he's looking for that big success.
2: So winning is context-specific, which I understand, mm-hmm. and also the definition, as I'm listening to you, of what winning is. Winning for one person, particularly, say, in the financial arena, maybe just to maintain your portfolio. Right. Or if it's for someone else, it may, uh, hey, I want to make $100,000 this year or 10000 or whatever it is, whatever your definition of winning is.
4: Right. And also, even for that one guy, if, you know, you're looking for a year on Wall Street, you know, how you did that day is, I think, you know, no one would have the luxury of saying, what am I doing this year? They would say, what do I want to do this day, this week, this quarter? And that actually I think may be some of the problem because they're they may be taking specific risks to play to win and not be thinking in that sort of long term, yes, but are these short term gains going to be a problem in the future? Um, it's interesting, Allah Kumar, a researcher at the University of Texas, looked and he actually found that though they're not that many, only about sixteen percent. Uh, but that women make better financial analysts on Wall Street than men. And the reason he looked at about 3 million, um, quarterly estimates, so not, not buy sell ratings per se, but, you know, analysts looking at a stock and figuring out is this going to make money next quarter or lose or whatever. And there's about 20,000 analysts, 20,000 companies being analyzed. And on average, the women were about 7.3% more accurate than the men. And this wasn't just, you know, women are in the apparel industry where there's 40% of the analysts are women. 38 of the 43 industries studied, women were more accurate. And it it seems to be that the women were, you know, really paying attention to the likelihood of success and being very careful in their analysis. And that because of that, they were more accurate in these financial reports and research has also s- found similar patterns for women on audit committees uh, companies are more likely to stay out of trouble when a- more women are on the board but how does this play out i mean this is the research
2: mm-hmm. and uh, actually i'm surprised to hear it because in re- in in reality or in real life how does this play out because it seems that you know wall street promotes men mm-hmm. corporations want to hire when it comes to women, they don't promote them to higher level jobs, and mm-hmm. you're saying kind of the research points out that, hey, they're the winners when it comes to these kinds of things in business. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, why? Paula,
4: uh, economist Paula Sapienza, looking at this research that I discussed, a researcher out of the University of Chicago, um, quite emphatically said that men are being overhired and women are being underhired.
2: How do we Absolutely. change that? <laughs>
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. The same skill that may make them a a great financial analyst may hurt them in the job interview because that same sort of being careful and analysis and reasoned and saying this is exactly what's going to happen and they're right might hurt you because one guy a guy Uh might walk into a job interview and say, I've got a $10 million book and I have this many clients and this is how far we can go in the next year. And he's going to be optimistic and overconfident and selling himself. And some of it may be wildly overestimates, right? He can't deliver this, but he has this vision of where he's going, and that's what he's going to sell in a job interview. And a woman's going to go to that same interview, and she's going to say, here's what I can deliver. And she's right. It's exactly what she thinks she can deliver. Maybe she can do even better. But... The people who are hiring are looking for the person who's selling them and convincing them that this is going to be great. So in that case, women's cautiousness, women's careful analysis, may actually hurt them. So
2: this is fascinating. So in other words, they get to the interview, and it makes a lot of sense. So the guy makes it exciting and creative and dynamic, and the woman is maybe more practical and realistic, and that's not so sexy.
3: So they actually yeah, measured
4: warm and she's measured in what she thinks she can do and she's honest and i don't think that the guy is necessarily lying but he's giving the optimistic this is the best case scenario for hiring me and then they say well if that's the best uh, we should go with that because that sounds pretty amazing whereas the woman's not saying here's the best case scenario this is what's really going to happen and compared to the guy who's selling the best case it doesn't seem very exciting then women lose out in the interview process. They have yes, lost before so. they've mm-hmm. had a chance
2: to win. <laughs>
4: right. Exactly.
2: So one has to we have to change that.
4: Yeah, I hope so. It's one of the reasons we wrote about it. <laughs> yeah, and you should, I was going to say you have to
2: be one of the women who changes that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're an attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us an example of uh, cuz that's another profession right. and there are now many more I guess women in terms in law school, 50-50 or mm-hmm. at least almost 50-50, let's say. Mm-hmm. So it's equal. Uh, how do women do, win and lose, or how competitive are they uh, in in the in the, in law in the field of law? What happens to them there?
4: Well, it's interesting in law and in politics. Uh, researchers have looked to see, you know, how are women moving, you know, through the glass ceiling if they are. And um, let's do a pop quiz. Do you know how many women filled out forms tried to run for governor in 2012?
2: I have no idea.
4: Let's we'll just take a wild guess.
3: Tried to run for governor um... of
4: their state in 2012,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and I don't mean they went; to, they won the primary and were the general. I just mean anybody filled out a form. I'm going to run for governor.
2: Well, I know there are very few governors.
4: Of well, there are 100. And, there are 181 million adult women.
2: I, I, I'm going to say under. I will say under a hundred. Four. Yeah, a very few. I would four,
4: four women. I, yeah, and I would have said country. I would have said ten, but I didn't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody. I've I've talked to people in Washington, you know, leaders who were yeah. in charge of getting people to become candidates, and they couldn't believe it either. They're like, four? Really? That's, That's it? Uh, I mean, you know, there's why? usually a hundred random people saying I'm running for president for no reason, right? But
0: they're exactly. almost all men.
4: And. The research seems to say, um, and, it, and it really the pioneering study on this, I think, came from Sarah Fulton at Texas A and M, and she studied and surveyed 835 state legislators, and around the country, and she asked them, both men and women, what's the likelihood you would run for Congress, you know, move that one next step in the next election, and if you did r- run. What's the likelihood you'd win? And for men, there was no relationship between these two answers. They would say, yeah, I'm going to run, even if they knew they were going to lose. Women had to have at least a 20% chance before they were in, really needed at least 50% and even toss-up before they said they were going to. And this was, you know, women basically just seemed to be, on average, refused to waste time with losing. Women are good at analyzing the odds, going back to Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Men are good at ignoring the odds. And in something like politics, running for office, that's what you need. Because most of the time, congressional incumbents are elected 95% of the time. You've got to go in knowing I'm probably going to lose, but i got to fight as hard as I possibly can and be excited and push through it. Entrepreneurs, startup companies, you've got to go in thinking, well, most people go down in flames, but I'm the one who will make it and ignore those odds. And the research has said, you know, that women in the law are doing the same thing. Texas judges, New York State judges, women were only going to go for that bench if they really thought I have a chance of winning. Otherwise, they let it pass by.
2: So we as women, what I'm hearing from you is we're over overly cautious, so we mm-hmm. don't even get, it doesn't even put us in the arena in the first place,
4: right? we've
2: overanalyzed,
4: that... mm-hmm. and
2: so if we want to be successful or competitive, and all, of, we, we've mentioned Wall Street and, and attorneys, and, mm-hmm. and of course in your book you have many, many other areas, there has to be, what, an attitude shift for women?
4: Well, I, you know, I have to say that, you know, the goal is not putting women in boxes or men in boxes, it's saying... To, for me, myself, I can't point to a particular moment in my life, but I have this feeling that I've done that, where I let an opportunity pass by because the outcome wasn't, it just didn't seem sure enough to me. It was too much of a risk. I didn't know how it would turn out. And that I've realized you'll learn things from disregarding the victory and saying, I'm going for this because I believe in it. I can learn from it. I'm going to be passionate about it. And... And not be so concerned about the guaranteed win or loss at the end. And that's where I think especially women who are thinking about trying to get a promotion, trying to run for office, you know, doing an investment, that's the kind of questions. Are, you know, women passing opportunities that could help them up because they really are looking for the sure thing. And it's hard though. I mean, women on average sort of think that running for office or trying to get for promotion may be a burden on their family. It's going to mean that they're not at home with their kids as much. It may be stressful on their, on their husband and their marriage. And they include that in the calculus for should I go for it. Men who are contemplating running for office, don't see running for office as a burden on the family. They see it as an opportunity for the family to all get together, like the Kennedys, and all spend time working on a common goal. That's they a point. That, the I, I, family I, I, a I, thought,
2: yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that also, with, just taking it back to the ordinary person who mm-hmm. is, let's take a man who they tell him that he is going to get a raise in a better mm-hmm. position. I don't think he thinks about, well, am I going to be away from my children too much if I have mm-hmm. to, you know, work more hours to make more money to get this this promotion? It doesn't go into the
4: mix. I th- well, I actually think it does, but in the positive way. My, I think the still idea is that men are supposed to be breadwinners, and if I get a raise in a promotion, I have increased – what I'm doing for my family. I'm fulfilling my family. I'm benefiting my family. It's not at their cost. Whereas women are still thinking a promotion might be for them but hurt the family. So I think that they're kind of wondering if this is right, whereas men think uh, that that promotion, that status helps everyone, and women just aren't sure.
2: Well, Ashley, if this is still the case in reality and practically and also just in terms of our attitude as women, there really doesn't seem to be a way for us to actually be a governor of a state or be the head of a corporation because we've got all this, this other stuff happening that kind of prevents us from being able to do that.
4: Well, I, I disagree. I think that you need to talk to the family. I mean, it may be that the guy who wants the promotion isn't considering that his kids say, no, actually, Dad, I'd rather not have the nice new car and you be home and more be- and at more baseball games. Whereas he may not have asked them that, and the and the parent who is saying, I don't think I should go for this, the promotion, whatever, I, the mom because I don't know, you know, my kid wants me home more. The kid may say, no, actually, you're happier when you're working, so um, it'd be great if you did a raise. I'm okay. Uh, but we got to ask. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, in other words, you're saying well, nothing's going to change unless we ask and we get it out there and we have the discussion. You have to sit down. You have to, first of all, you have to be aware, and then second of all, you have to right. sit down and have the discussion, or it won't, cha- it won't
4: change. Right. I absolutely think that that's true. And I think that, you know, especially for women, but men, men too, that we don't necessarily see these, you know, internal dialogues are going on. And once you do and actually try and figure it out, um, that's, you know, hopefully going to change things.
2: Is there a room in graduate schools? Because we've reached the point as women, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, okay, mm-hmm. uh, law schools accept 50% women. I think med schools do, Ph.D. Mm-hmm. programs. We've, you know, we've changed over the past 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. But now we have to extend that. Ne- ne- should there be courses or curriculum that really address this issue? Now you, you pass the bar, or you, you know, you're... you're went through your residency, but the next step involves a lot of other decisions that you're going to have to concern yourself as women. Perhaps that should be part of the curriculum in graduate school.
4: Uh, um, I think it's there somewhat, but I think it probably needs to be there more. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be helpful.
2: And your book would be another part of the
4: curriculum. That would be awesome. (laughs) What's been
2: the response to your book, Men and Women, if I can you know, generalize?
4: Um, I, I think everyone seems really excited about it. And I know I'm very excited about it. And one of the reasons why is I've just sort of heard for the last decade or so, we need to be more competitive, right? The nation needs yep. to be competitive. It doesn't matter what political persuasion you are. Romney said it. Obama said it. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, you can, we need to compete. And, you know, a CEO can stand in front of a company. We, the company needs to be create, competitive. And everybody nods. And it even fills down to our schools, our kids. Everyone needs to be ready for taking on China, yeah. but nobody tells you how to be competitive. It just say you need to do it. So to have some ideas on how to actually approach competition, I you know I find very exciting. And happily, people who've been hearing it are going, "Oh my gosh, really?"
2: Yeah. And not just people. What about your friends? I mean, I kind of asked it in a general sense of mm-hmm. the general public, but your friends. Your let's say your um, colleagues, attorneys, um, younger women—let's mm-hmm. in, in terms of
4: reading this book—or
2: what's been their response?
4: Um, they've actually been—I, I, you know, I—if you're my friend, one of the you know benefits and I guess burdens of being my friend is that I tell people as I'm writing the book, "Oh my god, I read this great study and blah blah blah." So a lot of times they already know stuff before the actual book comes out. Um, so I'm always surprised when they, you know, call me and say, oh, my God, I couldn't believe this study with, you know, about women and men, or I couldn't believe the research on teams and how most teams are too big and how that increases, that slows individual productivity 40%. Oh, my God, I'm on 12 teams at work, and now I'm sitting around going, oh, can I do more without all of these meetings? Sure, I could, but now I have number on what I'm doing. And um, so I'm sort of, you know, it's kind of exciting when my friends are that excited and see it operating in their real lives. Um, you know, we actually have a chapter on how competition fuels innovation. You know, the, um, the reason that you have canned goods in your pantry is because Napoleon had a contest. He needed to feed the troops without the produce spoiling on the way to war.
2: And well, that's so a whole. We have to. Uh, you know, I've, we went up right to the end. That's a whole other topic. That's very interesting.
3: <laughs> uh, but I just. Well, I
2: again. Ha- I'm serious. That's another thing. We we have to have you on the show again to talk about that. Sure. I find that interesting. But uh, And as you said, so anyway, it's a science. I mean, that's what you're saying. It's the mm-hmm. science of winning and losing. It's not just go out there and, and win the game or whatever it is, but there's actually a science, and that's what this whole book is about. It's fantastic. Ashley Merriman, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing, website we can go to. Topdogsbooks.com. That's easy. Yep. Thanks, Ashley, for being on the show. It was great. Great Thank talking you. to you. We are going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.CatherineZox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great
0: conversations with Catherine Zox.